0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. We organized this event more than three years ago, but the pandemic got in our way. But here we are, um, finally doing uh, a program. This is Ava Roy is going to be with us tonight, um, who uh, runs uh, We Players. Everybody can clap. (laughs) We have a live audience here today, um, and uh, we have a gorgeous view of uh, the Bay Bridge right out of our windows here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Um, what our program today is, uh, uh, let me just back up a second, those three years, uh, it was uh, March uh, 9th or so of 2020 that we had to shut down for uh, the pandemic. And uh, we were all set to to have a program in early April or uh, mid-April, so uh, about the program that we players was going to put on then about Alice in the Parks. So here we are 3 years later Alice is in the Parks and uh and everyone's half recovering and it was very wise to be outside when you perform because that gets a bigger, you know, more people will come uh nowadays. So anyway, um we have Ava here to talk about Alice, but we're going to make Ava talk about Ava too. So, um because uh, her background is really in, in interesting and inspiring about how she got into this. But first, we're going to talk about We Players and how it puts together its programs, its it shows outside. Um, she has a deal with the public parks in San Francisco. And so, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, Ava. It's nice to be here after a three year wait.
1: Thank you. It is so nice to be here with you and nice to see some faces I don't know because some faces uh, that I do know are here, which is also very nice to see. Um, but thanks to those who are just interested in talking about art and Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. And um, I think one thing that's really special about working with this material is so many people not only have a relationship to these texts, but a very special And personal relationship to these texts. And so I'm interested in sharing a little bit of my story, which started when I was a little kid, the first production of Alice I was ever in. I was in eighth grade and I've been doing versions of this uh, piece at sort of Accidentally on purpose at various milestones in my creative life. Um, but that said, I'm interested to sort of follow the conversation where people are interested as well, because there's a lot we could talk about in terms of the books, but also, as you mentioned, George, this way of staging things that are interactive and outside and in public parks and invite a little bit more participation from the audience than the usual uh, theatrical event. So I'm excited to uh,
2: chat.
0: Yeah, and the computer seems to be following us because. Uh... OneDrive uh, puts up pictures from your past and just hands them to you on a daily basis. And uh, and just yesterday we got uh, the pictures of Sophie and I all dressed up for the uh, for the it's party funny. for the Capulet ball that we went to.
2: So, <laughs> wow, so that
0: was very funny. Yeah. Um,
1: for those so, who don't uh, no, know,
0: so we don't know who's in charge of those uh, photographs. That was pretty subtle.
1: Yeah. For <laughs> those who don't know, he's referencing um, we did a production of Romeo and Juliet in 2016. And as a preamble to the full blown production, which was up at Rancho Petaluma Adobe um, State Historic Park. And then a second version with completely different costumes and different staging was done at Villa Montalvo. Um, in Saratoga because each show is designed and built for a unique location. So even if it's the same actors in the same story, costume and design elements have to change to be in relationship with the space. Um, But we, as a preamble, extracted the party Uh, that the Capulets throw where Romeo and Juliet first meet and fall in love as a standalone event. So you as an audience came and you ate food and you listened to the band and you danced in the great circle dance that we invented as the ancient (laughs) ritual of the Capulets, uh, during which time uh, all focus was brought to the center of the circle where Romeo and Juliet um, meet and fall in love. So you got to be right there at their first encounter um, and you brought your daughter.
0: Yes. And it was fascinating how you say that you created this... dance. Uh, so that's how traditions are all created. Nobody knows how to get started. You know, a thousand years later, everyone's still doing this. How did that happen? It must have been very important.
1: So remember this talk. We're <laughs> calling the great Capulet circle dance in 20 years from <laughs> somewhere. Um, but back to, Alice. Back to Alice. Alice. Absolutely.
0: Let's talk about Alice.
1: Um, a good place to start because I just can't help it. I'm looking at her right in front of me. Um, Regina Leon is here and she plays Alice. And it's such a treat uh, to work with you. And I'm so tickled that you'd come and spend more time <laughs> thinking about Alice and talking about Alice. Um,
0: she told me she hasn't seen herself perform yet, so make <laughs> <laughs> She's
1: about to see a little video, in fact. Uh, so why don't I actually play you a two-minute video that will give you a little visual glimpse into the adaptation that we are currently doing, which um, I suppose I should introduce that. We're doing a production called Adventures with Alice in Golden Gate Park. Um, We opened two weeks ago and we run through the end of May, through May 29th Memorial Day. And as an audience, you follow the cast, namely Alice, uh, who's following the White Rabbit, who's sitting right next to her, which is (laughs) also quite fun, um, through about a mile of Golden Gate Park. And one of the things that we players, uh, uh, the company that I started 23 years ago and that has been doing Uh, I think I actually just recently, uh, we recently tallied or read somewhere that we've done 27 shows in 17 parks in the past uh, uh, little while. <laughs> in the past 20, 20 years, yeah, thank you. And as I mentioned before, every show is built for a unique location. So the version that we were in rehearsal for in 2020, when you and I were going to talk about this, was called "What Alice Found There." And it had 12 actors. This version has eight. It moved about three miles through the park um, and the other direction. So while this is, uh, while this is yet another uh, dive into this material, every show has to be adapted for the time and the people. And some of the actors from that 2020 production were able to join us again. Others, their lives had shifted. And so there's some new members of the cast and some members who are going to be as part of the show in 2020. Uh, But we redesigned the piece um, and it's now called Adventures with Alice. And this is what I'm going to just give you a little context for by showing you a a little video and then we can talk more.
0: Okay. But before people forget they can get tickets to this.
1: Oh yeah, you can get tickets to the, we just added an extension weekend, which is that weekend, the last weekend of May, the 25th through the 29th. our tickets sold out lickety-split for this one. And I think it's a real sign. I was
0: gonna say, that's that's different nowadays. Yeah. Selling out is hard.
1: It is. And it certainly was, um, you know, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. We were able to continue making work all throughout the pandemic, largely because we'd spent 20 years developing and sustaining relationships with both our partners at the national parks, state parks, and municipal parks. And so because we already had not only those relationships, but that real-time boots-on-the-ground time spent understanding some of the unique ins and outs of what it is to work in a park, whether that's having, you know, second nature that you'd never attach anything to a historic structure... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or uh, wayfinding signage that is non-invasive to the ecology or the plants, um, and lots of different things that are sort of unique about working in park sites, including the real endurance test of being in the elements. Um, one thing that those who do come to see Alice uh, this spring will enjoy is the incredible lush verdant landscape Mm -hmm. that these incredibly colorful costumes just are so just pop and are so saturated that are the result of rehearsing in head-to-toe rain gear
2: for two (laughs) weeks
1: in the park and uh, relocating rehearsals sometimes because of branches the size of trees falling and uh, unique things that you don't have to think about in a theater which way the wind is blowing what the weather is going to be Um, whether you're under vulnerable branches or not, uh, what stinging nettle looks like, how to alert other people to what stinging nettle looks like. So these are... No poison oak though, right? No, not in this spot. But in other parks, we've had to have signage at registration of this is what a rattlesnake looks like. This is what poison oak looks like. So again, it really... This is what
0: the white rabbit looks like. And
1: this is what the white... She's unmistakable. You (laughs) will know what to do when you see the white rabbit. Um, but every park gives its different challenges, and some of those we know and can shore ourselves up for, like investing in rain gear before the first day of rehearsal, and some of those things we can't prepare for, uh, which we can speak to a little bit as well. Uh, there are other people who use the park, and we do our best to coexist as good neighbors, but sometimes there's challenges with that. Um, and there are other you know, events in people's lives that when you are making a show, especially on this scale— And especially the way that we players does it or at least we put a lot of energy into building community and we have really simple rituals but nonetheless rituals that we uh, practice as a community to build community so this small group of people really becomes a family for uh, a short amount of time but a concentrated amount of time and that's in a way not dissimilar to what an audience experiences when they see a show it's this heightened concentrated period of time that is like life but somehow denser and more concentrated that then in turn becomes a mirror or a lens through which we can reflect on and more clearly see aspects of our own life, right? That's part of why we go to engage with art and certainly performance art where we're more aware that this is ephemeral and unrepeatable and only happening this way this once. And with we players, that's extra, extra true because you're experiencing the show in the rain if it's raining or the sun if it's sunny or with a hawk flying overhead at the ideal moment or with a helicopter flying overhead at the not ideal moment. Um, So all of these things that are real challenges um, and are variables that we can't control sometimes are really enriching and sometimes are really challenging, but I really believe help heighten the Awareness that this moment right now is only happening this way, and that can give us a greater ability to savor and appreciate. Um,
0: Friends of mine had their wedding interrupted by a semi trailer. They had they were on a little island behind a hotel, and the semi trailer came to uh, deliver some goods. And the guy couldn't grind his, uh, you know, he kept grinding his wheels <laughs> right while they were taking their vows. Oh boy! I'm sure they would have enjoyed oh this theory that you have about being in the moment and enjoying the moment. It didn't work that way for them.
1: No, and I am I am extremely imperfect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not always ideal.
0: No. <laughs> um,
1: but actually, it does connect back to what I was saying a moment ago about building community. And this is a thing, I think there are certain words that um, we mean well when we use them a lot, but then sometimes they get diluted through their overuse. And I think sometimes community or placemaking, some of the things that are very near and dear to me, um, can start to feel that way. But I really do believe that when we take the time to be in a circle, to make eye contact, to say one word about how we're doing, mm-hmm. which isn't an explanation of all the things that are in the way and why you can't possibly be present or a long litany of excuses, but really just acknowledging where are you starting from so that we can move from the truth of where we are into the unknown of the next moment. And that when things get really crazy and hard, whether that's The weather, which is intense, but doesn't hurt our feelings or other things that happen in life, like someone getting in a car accident a week before opening and having to replace that actor and take care of the community and take care of the person or try to support the person who's going through that loss and experience that we already have the foundation of sh- of, st- of shoring each other up mm-hmm. and staying strong. So hopefully in those moments when I am being awesomely imperfect about <laughs> the semi-truck going by during the vows, someone else on the crew is able to grab my shoulder in that moment and, and remind me, this is going to pass and this is going to be okay. And so on.
0: <laughs> well, this is going to be okay. I can tell. <laughs>
1: So I have a few stills to run through. I'll go through them fairly quickly, but I think the stills gives me a chance uh to um share some things I might not otherwise think of. Like here is an example of the audience truly following Alice and you get some instruction to follow Alice and there's a fun layering where Alice is following the rabbit and you are following Alice following the rabbit. And now that we've opened, we've learned that actually you are following the children who are following Alice, who is following the white rabbit. Um, Because one of the highlights has been young people um, who are. In fact, one of them told me yesterday, Regina, at the end of the show said, what was a highlight? Well, I made friends with Alice. And so I really love that it wasn't just, some of them I think are just in adoration and others uh, leave knowing that you're
0: their new best friend. (laughs) I was wondering, does we players provide the costumes to the audience too? Because they really look like an audience.
1: They do look exactly like an audience. It's pretty interesting. Um, We do provide a signifier for every show and it's different for every production. Um, And that's, often a way that we can identify who our audience is, who we need to be responsible for. And then sometimes when we're working in historic sites where we're bringing people into off-limits areas, like when we did Hamlet on Alcatraz, there were a lot of areas that we had very special uh, permission to be in, and we could only take our audience members into those places. And so we need to be able to quickly visually identify them. Um, there's our white rabbit being fab. And one of the things that's fun. So as you enter Wonderland, you pass by the characters who are kind of staggered along the trail and in the woods and moving, not moving. They're these sort of living sculptures that some are set further back in the distance. Um, some are up closer to you. There's the white queen running across the lawn. Uh, towards you. Um, and then sometimes you're really right up close to them. But they, there's a sort of way in which I'm trying to make the boundary between the worlds a little thinner because uh, you see things off in the distance, or you see something right up close to you, or they're clearly a character, but they're not speaking or doing a scene yet, but they're part of the world. So all of these things are ways to kind of both draw your eye into different parts of the environment, this three dimensional multidimensional stage that we get to use by being outside. Um, But you also start to question, is that runner in the all green outfit, like part of the show or... (laughs) or not.
0: Who does the costumes? I mean, they're so elaborate and beautiful. Thank you. Do you you. guys put them together yourself?
1: Uh, Brooke Jennings is our costume designer. We've been working with her almost exclusively since 2015. Um, And a lot of the the music you heard in the video um, is from Charlie Girk, who's been our in-house composer and music director since 2010. Mm. And Brooke has worked with us since 2015. She's exceptional, does beautiful work. Dana Taylor, who's a dear friend, an incredible seamstress, does a lot of the actual construction of some of the more complicated items like these pants that manage to stay up regardless of what tumbling the Tweedles do, and they do plenty of it. Um, And I think that, you know, one thing that's uh, nice to acknowledge there is that when you find collaborators that you can communicate with and that get some of the, that you can share some of the uniqueness of the work, you know, those are relationships to really hold on to because these costumes have to endure a different kind of wear and tear than the average.
2: Um,
1: Here, I just included this to kind of remind me to, to, to talk about and show you how intimately close you can be with the Actor sometimes And how this is a moment that's, you know, really unprepared and is just part of leading people into a new space is just kind of a moment that the photographer caught versus this, which is an intentional uh, interactive moment. We usually try to engage all five senses, including taste. And so sometimes that's more elaborate food here. It's just a little sweet that's being passed out amongst the audience. Um, but we try to stimulate all the senses. Movement, physical, kinesthetic movement is most simply achieved through walking and following Alice, following the rabbit. In this case, you have the option to get on your feet and play interactive croquet. Um, These lovely uh, audience members are being wickets. And the white queen is a ball at present going through. Here's a very little audience member traveling with uh, Tweedledum through the wickets. And then other scenes are set up in a much more um, traditional uh, uh, arrangement, where in this case, the audience is just facing that tree and that tree becomes the center post of the playing space for that scene. Uh, but if you look further off in the distance, just beyond this, at the same moment as this is happening, the white knight is off at the top of the, ha- the hill, enshrouded in mist. And even further beyond him, which you can't see in the photo, but you can see if you're not so absorbed with the Tweedles, which is very difficult not to be completely absorbed with the Tweedles. But if you do look off in the distance, you will see the White Knight and even further beyond that Humpty Dumpty, who's on top of this uh, ledge. Um, And this is also a reminder of Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. So where's our wall? And what does the park provide? And I'm not going to build a wall that I have to set up or take down every day. Uh, I might by bringing a ladder if it need be, but we look for what is already in the space. Um, sometimes that's designing costumes to match the patina of the peeling paint on a historic building. And sometimes that's using the structures that are there. This is called circle body, which is kind of appropriate, actually. It's yeah. uh, Circular. Uh huh. But it's kind of like chin up bars, but there's thing circle things that hang from it, and you s- whatever. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a structure used for exercise, and for about ten minutes uh, a day, uh, exercisers cannot use it because Humpty Dumpty is using it. And then one of the great joys, again, is that we get to stage things in the distance and um, the white rabbit, if you're paying attention. Um, And for our young folks, they're very engaged. But if they do get distracted, their favorite game seems to be where's the white rabbit, uh, which some of our youngest ones call the y rabbit.
2: <laughs>
1: the Y-rabbit, which is kind of great because they she's a very existential character, this keeper of time, and we have to keep moving. We have to move. We're
0: going to have to ask her why. Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> exactly. She doesn't
0: have an answer, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, why? Well, so the white rabbit will keep sort of appearing. Here's us just moving together with uh, Alice. Um, these three actors have uh, extra work because you might notice two of them as Tweedledum and Tweedledee who have now been transformed into the Dormouse and the March Hare. And Humpty Dumpty arrives to the tea party scene uh, a little later than others for he must uh, transform. Um, And this I wanted to um, just sort of show, you know, your view as an audience member. And then You know, the view that a passerby might see on any given day or the view that I might see as I lurk in the background and watch you from different angles. So sometimes the audience takes a more traditional arrangement versus what we saw with the croquet uh, interactivity. And then the light, you know, I mean, I'm sure a very, very talented light designer could be inspired by this and try to do something like it. Uh, But we get to have nature do it for us. And um, we know one thing that is both a challenge, but also a joy is that on the misty, misty, foggy days where you're sort of inside a cloud, it's cold and you need to wear layers of wool and your winter parka. And for real, for real, it's cold. Uh, And the light does magical things like this versus the days where it's sunny, where it's warm and easy and there's dappled light and that's a different kind of beauty. Um,
0: Quite a jump you have there.
1: Yeah. Um, There is a very dangerous street crossing. We have to cross a street, and so this is an example of like knowing who our audience members are. Because if we're one or two people, or if not responsible for you, go ahead cross the street. You learned how to do this a long time ago. But when we're doing this as a group of a hundred people, we have to orchestrate it. We have to orchestrate everything, um, and so uh, we have four of our actors, five of our actors at the street crossing, supporting the safe passage of our audience. A rabbit, a knight, a white rabbit, a white knight, two Tweedles and an Alice are, are what it takes to get you across. And so you see D is serious about those bikers and cars stopping for our people to get by. I will also say that the band, uh, every time you travel, there's music. So you both get used to the sound, uh, meaning it's time to move. It also supports carrying the atmosphere so that as you are falling into kind of passing conversations or noticing other things in the environment, there's still this way that you're sonically held in the space. I also really believe it gets in your body and your body is responding to the sound and knows to start walking, um, and we finally end at Lloyd Lake, which for those of you familiar with Golden Gate Park right now, what we've just seen, you've been walking from uh, basically this historic stables near the polo field through McLaren Pass, which is really magical and somewhat lesser known uh, not to the people who use it, but I think to the average Golden Gate Park visitor. And we end at Lloyd Lake, which is at the corner of JFK and Crossover Drive. And this structure in the background is called Portals of the Past, which is a portico from a old Victorian. And this is where the portal to Wonderland closes.
2: Uh-oh.
1: It's true. And I added this last little tag because um, for me, these are some of the uh, favorite views that I get to see by sneaking around in the background as the actors wait for the audience to approach. So there's a lot of leapfrogging that's going on with actors running ahead of the audience or the musicians following behind the audience in order to magically be in front of you when you get there. So this is a place where these actors are waiting for the audience to approach them before they do a thing. Um, But it also is a reminder to me that there's a performance that the regular park visitors can experience. There's also a durational performance art piece going on that really nobody is necessarily noticing. One of my favorite moments is actually when the Mad Hatter just walks from his last scene with the audience to his final scene with the audience and to get there without the audience seeing him, he w- walks the whole length of Hellman Hollow, which for those who aren't familiar with it is a massive, it's the old Speedway meadow. It's a massive green meadow and it's, very long and it's full of people playing sports and having barbecues and the Mad Hatter is on this mission in full costume and it's just glorious because from behind the audience, you can watch it happen. So there's a lot of kind of ways in which there's, um, like Wonderland, I think this layering of, uh, of things going on and um you're lucky
0: you're doing this in a san francisco park where where people will just take us inside oh that's cute that's a nice outfit you got on today
1: yeah totally i mean the queen gets the red queen especially gets because he's pretty fly yeah he's pretty fly um and i think yeah that brings us back to uh to just being here talking about what we saw and what we're thinking as we all regale remember our own stories of alice
0: Well, that was a great view, first of all, and second of all, I think everybody's now going to want to know, how did you get into that? Because this is like a very different way to do art. You've been doing it for 23 years to do theatre, but did you go to school in theatre?
1: I did not. I, yeah, I, (laughs) (laughs) so I grew up on the East Coast and I had really pretty special training with Shakespeare and Company when I was in high school. Um, They are a really special uh, Shakespeare training institute and theater Um, and so a lot of my work, uh, most of my work actually is rooted in adaptations of Shakespeare Mm -hmm. um, and working with that training that frankly I got in high school around finding a personal emotional connection to the text, Mm -hmm. speaking at the speed of thought, speaking in your own voice, not some idea of Shakespeare speak, um, and that this language is language that belongs to all of us. And when I was in high school, I got to play Henry V and I, I was like 16 and had this amazing double broadsword fight and had all this incredible language yeah. so for me it was like no thing to cast genders uh, whatever sizes and shapes our hamlet on alcatraz was a was a woman and she played it as hamlet whereas other times we're really making a statement or a choice by having a woman play a man or a man play a woman in this case the red queen's the red queen happens to be a man is very femme, but also has a beard. Like it's just, it's always, you know, so I really credit kind of just my experience growing up being able to play women and men and creatures, um, that, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Very Shakespearean totally. Um,
0: just and, out of curiosity had uh, Henry V been done by Kenneth Branagh as a movie before you did, it? did, did you see it. It
1: was before I hadn't seen it. You hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen it. Yeah. No. Um, and then when I got to school, uh, it's a very beautiful place. I wanted to come to California. I was very lucky to get to go there, but it was a very strange uh, transition for me, having grown up in a very small rural environment to get to a very... Um, very, very different environment. And to me, initially, it sort of felt like a a bit of a country club, Stanford did, that I wasn't quite sure how to relate to. And so this is the way that I found how to relate to it, (laughs) was to um, tie bodies to the sculptures and throw banners off the clock towers and use the incredible picturesque uh, setting as the stage. Um, And also, it really began as a social experiment. What would happen if Romeo and Juliet were getting married in the middle of the quad? If there was a sword fight um, outside of the uh, student union, like what would people do? Um, And we found that people would drop what they were doing and join the parade
2: Mm
0: -hmm. and follow. Did you get extra credit for this or did you get detention?
1: I got to work really hard to get them to believe this was my real work <laughs> and I ended up designing a major to support this because it was not my weird extracurricular curricular activity uh though it sure seemed that way but I was actually then able to look to well of course you know I was 20 I thought I was the first person to ever do anything like this I'm inventing the wheel all my by self <laughs> and then started getting some uh nudges from professors to maybe look at some ancient rituals and some ancient religious dramas and not to necessarily replicate those. But it turns out that um India in particular, I study yoga, have for a very long time. And so I was naturally interested in, in the culture from where yoga came. And so w- my mind was blown when I learned about the Katakali Festival, where those actors are born into a lineage where you spend your whole lifetime preparing to be that character, which then for the duration of the ritual, you will be venerated as the god. And these people stay up all night long for this festival. And there's like a sand mandala that's built over a week in preparation that is then wiped away before the performance begins. And this is just one example of the types of really robust, colorful, religious dramas that are happening. That was more a source of inspiration than than anything. Thing else yeah
0: yeah that that scares me a little bit because i think there must be a political future for you because a lot of the people that do that in india end up running for all, political office because people believe that they are that god um that they've been playing and they win uh, so
1: i'm more likely to I, run I, away I, to the woods and then, be a
0: tree then,
1: yeah. than <laughs> i
0: you're not you are people running. in the
1: room who will help keep me who will remind me to <laughs> cuz
0: we need somebody younger than 80 to run for president next <laughs> year so
1: yeah, <laughs> I
2: don't
0: want to do that. Okay. All
1: right. <laughs> but so that's how it got started was, you know, it was trying to make a place for myself in a place where I didn't really feel well placed. And then it really uh, grew and took on a life of its own. Um, and then there were some really uh, visionary special people that I got to connect with in the National Park Service who were willing to take a risk. And, uh, support this work because while it's really special, um, it's also, uh, it's different than a visual art installation, which is also really special, but as a very concentrated period of install, usually there's exceptions the way people work, but a concentrated period of install, and then it's just up. And the way that theater works is just not like that. We have a sustained impact over time, and we're making it up as we go. It's not a finished work that we're installing. We're figuring out the challenges. We're learning that, oh, the birds nest here too, and we need to figure out how to, you know. So there's a lot of ways in which uh, there are a lot of challenges, and it's a big impact on um some of the parks, and so it took you know certain people being willing to say yes to a wild idea to kind of get the momentum that we have now um, and then also artists evolve, and the work evolves and one thing i 'm really interested in now is the way a lot of these background images that you 've seen the white rabbit, the night in the mist how those how I might start pulling those more into the foreground um, usually they 're ways of kind of enhancing the story that you 're following. Um, But in 2021, uh, we did a production called Psychopomp that was at McLaren Park. Um, And we were still very much in all the COVID restrictions and unknowns of duration and so on. And so we had to make a show. I wanted to make a show that would have all the COVID restrictions and safety concerns baked into the conceit rather than trying to apply them after the fact to something like Alice, where... We would dramatically change what we could do. We wouldn't be able to do half of what you just saw uh, under those restrictions. So with Psychopomp, we were like, okay, everybody's masked. We're outside and it's a walk in the park and two people can travel at a time. So it was a very private, intimate performance where there were eight different, a Psychopomp is a god from various mythologies that helps transport the soul to the other place. Whatever that other place is. So they deal in the liminal. They they their transaction is in the liminal space, a space in between, which felt thematically very much like where we were, where we've been. Um and the audience got to travel one at a time and encounter these different characters and scenes along the way.
0: And did the people who bought tickets for this realize that they were going to the other world or um <laughs>
1: They found out <laughs> they did in that they, you know, they get to come back, they get to come back, okay, good. they get to come back, that they would leave the journey more prepared to continue the journey of their daily lives, we hope. Um, but it really brought forward Well, that, that still had a it was less of a narrative arc because you the audience then becomes the narrative arc interacting with each of these and kind of what you're saying, taking what you take for some people, it was very profound for other people, it was just very beautiful, but um, depending on you know it, it's much more speaking just to you and you don't have to share the actors with 98 other audience members um, but it also um, it also really brought uh, forward for me a little bit some of these ideas that other artists have long since explored as well about um, environmental installation art or durational art, things like that. But the way in which uh, some of these background images might come into the foreground. Um, And then also that while the pandemic was really painful and difficult for so many artists and for so many arts organizations, I mean, we've all heard this before, but it's also an opportunity to evaluate and reevaluate and innovate. And that's what we as artists, like that's our main thing that we spend our time doing is trying to develop ideas and throw new questions at them. And so as difficult as it was, it was also this opportunity to say, how do we do what we've always been doing for 20 years, but do it in a new way? Um, So I'm really interested to see, um, well, I'm really proud of and excited for you to see Alice and its current incarnation, I'm also newly interested in kind of going back to some of those ideas I had a long time ago and see where else they might go in addition to this manifestation.
0: Before we go further into that, um, you brought up the financial issue, and this is clearly not an inexpensive production, just looking at the costumes and everything like that. I was wondering if the national parks or the state parks, if they have a fund for arts, or or do they get money from National Endowment for the Humanities and get that as part of it, or is there just no financial support? They just let you use the park.
1: Um, In my experience, and it's probably different for different artists and different projects, but in my experience, uh, primarily what we are granted is access to the space um, and access to park staff for support around how to use the space. Um, But there's not a financial support, um, working with, um, and every park is different, whether it's national or state right now, we're working with San Francisco recreation and parks, and we actually pay a permit fee to the park to use the space. So there's a whole range from being in a partnership, um, for five years, um, back in 2011 to 2017, we were, um, had a cooperative agreement actually with San Francisco Maritime National Historical Park, which was a different type of arrangement that allowed us to even more easily do programming there. Mm -hmm. So it can range the gamut from paying a fee to use a site, being in a partnership where you're granted access. Um, Maybe there is something I haven't yet discovered where there's (laughs) (laughs) uh, resources. I mean, most of the parks have a friends association, which is the nonprofit related to them. So sometimes we've been able to work with the friends organization of the national park because a federal park in particular can't, you know, there's very specific rules about how money comes in and out and how those budgets are approved, but a friend's organization can take donations and can support us with marketing materials or things like that. Yeah.
0: You don't have any European friends that, that do this if you're the listening, there a lot of
1: out money. there and you're like, come on over. And we have another way that we do this and we'd love to support you. Uh, yes, please. But yeah, it's really a labor of love and, uh, a labor of love, not just for me, but for the people who support this work, because um, you know ticket sales cover a very, very, very small percentage of our overall operating budget, and these artists work so hard for very little money, especially when you consider the Bay Area and the place where we live mm-hmm. and i've watched so many artists um, and i no, this is not newsflash to anyone. Move away, move further away, move further away. Um, and some of the things that we did, you know, we did a six hour production of the Odyssey on an 800 acre stage that is Angel Island mm-hmm. in 2012. And it was amazing. And we could never do that again today we would it's there's no way that that would happen because that there were 40 people involved we were living on the island we had to house and feed everybody and and nobody got paid people got paid like this much and we we sold out and those ticket sales were so wonderful and they covered that small stipend the actors got and the expense of doing it and the only way something like that would happen again is with really serious hunting. Uh, And that's really hard to come by when you're a small nonprofit arts organization trying to do, you know, maintain the organization and make the art. And I think we're just at a time where there's so many people, artists, who have to have every minute of their time be expensed in some way Mm -hmm. in order to be here. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I didn't expect to have this clarion call for like, so go support whoever you love, whatever art form you like, whether it's jazz or ballet or whatever, like
0: the Commonwealth Club or
1: the Commonwealth Club or we players like there's a lot of people doing the work to do the work. And and we will because we can't not. But the scope and the scale of it, um, you know, is really directly affected by the support we receive in return. Uh, So so let's
0: take that deep dive now that we've gotten finances all the way. (laughs) So you have a kind of philosophy about this that you either come to or you you were born with it or you want to explain that?
1: (laughs) Well, I was born with, (laughs) Um, I mean, let me think about that for a moment. Philosophy. Yeah. I think it mostly grew out of experimentation as many things do. Um, and I got really interested right early on in making work. And actually, even as far back as the, the first thing I ever directed and adapted was shocker, an adaptation of Alice (laughs) when I was 18 in high school, um, and, even then I used the stage, but I put people up in the catwalks and the actors started behind the audience and it used the space in an interesting way. So I think on some level I've pretty much always been interested in um things happening above, behind, below and in the distance. And You're very well
0: in those spatial uh pretty good at, Yeah.
1: So my other my my fallback is <laughs> I can move and pack like you wouldn't believe. I can pack <laughs> any car. <laughs> I have excellent spatial relations, yes, but it's much more interesting um, in this in this incarnation, um, but I grew up in a place with a lot of space, and I had two gangs of imaginary friends and we staged all sorts of epic battles in the woods and I think that you know I think that those things that we joke about, but that are part of our fundamental landscape of our imagination Mm. comes from someplace and is developed over time and can change. Um, But as I've developed this work, I actually more and more and more clearly see Mm. how much the landscape of my childhood developed, the landscape of my imagination, which has then been enriched and transformed through being in California, which is a very different environment. But I think in that way, staging things in a way that, inspire you to look beyond what's right in front of you and i think on the experiments and reaction front um (laughs) i really love my iphone i really appreciate that i have it i was very slow to come to it but i'm also very concerned about the impulses to only look at it Mm -hmm. and be prompted by it all the time and the way our attention span is pretty pathetic often um and uh, i really um tried, I think the philosophy grows in part out of how can we have a really beautiful, fun time mm-hmm. practicing paying attention
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that when we are, as we said before, watching a piece of art, there's this concentrated, um, heightened reality that we get to be a part of. So that's already happening. But then when there's an opportunity to see these things in the distance, um, I think part of what I'm trying to explore both for myself and then through the work, um, is this idea that seeing is actually not something that just happens to us. It's, uh, we have agency in where, where we give our attention and where we, and that includes our sight. What we see, our perspective is we are the agents of our own experience. And that can be very, um, you know, richly philosophical in terms of being the artist of your own life and making choices that create the reality you want to have. But it can be, it can start as simply as noticing the flower in the sidewalk crack Mm. or noticing that there's a red tail. Red hawks are everywhere in the city. And if we start looking up, they're, all over the place, not just in Golden Gate Park. They're on the tops of buildings. And I think that these are the things that we're missing by being in such a hurry and only looking where we're told to look and, you know, things like that. So I I think the philosophy partly grows out of that experimentation and a desire to expand my own listening skills. Um, Recently, in the past couple of years, I've been able to t- take this theory that these pra- that some of these simple nature awareness practices, meditation practices, theater games, um, a whole kind of panoply of different types of awareness activities um, could be useful across disciplines. And I've had this opportunity um, via uh, a Dear collaborator, collaborator Shalini Agarwal, who's a faculty member at California College of the Arts, to uh, co-teach a class with her at CCA um, the past few years. And there's no performance at CCA. So these are all designers, experienced designers, graphic designers, photographers. Um, And the big kind of discovery for us um, and the effort of the class is to recognize that we have many intelligence centers besides the one that lives up here. And that a lot of us are moving through the world not actively connected on a daily basis to the wisdom of uh, the rest of our body, and that one seventh of our body is below the neck, mm-hmm. below the chin, and so we're only using one seventh of our intellectual capacity and intuitive capacity if we're only looking, only thinking with our the brain in our head, and that if we have if we're sight if we're sighted, we're often sight dominant, and the the ahas and the discoveries that the students are making on day 1 when we close our eyes and we go on a blind journey an unsighted journey through space it's amazing that even in 5 minutes how your ears change even just closing your eyes and saying what's the farthest thing i can hear can i get beyond that can i can i do can i identify what it is um can i guess what it is Um, So some of these really, really deceptively simple practices, it's been interesting to see with students who've not engaged with them before, um, one, how rigorous it is. It's exhausting to listen that closely or to look that closely at things sometimes. Um, But it's also been very, uh, it's been reinvigorating for me because it feels um, like yes is the answer. Yes, these practices are useful to enriching our lives our uh, imagination is a muscle and needs to be exercised and if you don't feel very creative or that your imagination is working it's just tired and it's just hasn't been exercised in a while and so what are the things that are within reach Mm -hmm. to help exercise that sixth sense of imagination or of maybe it's intuition um but that, like anything, what we give our attention to, we make more of. And so I think that the underlying philosophy is trying to explore the different ways that we can use engagement with art as both witnesses and as makers and participants to, yeah, choose and change our perspective, see the world from other angles.
0: I think you must be the person I've been looking for to ask this question. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So, what explains that you're in a party... And there's like 150 people in the room. And you're talking in groups of four or five or six people. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of chatter going on in the whole room. And you're, you're listening to the conversation that you're listening to, right, in, in your group. And suddenly you hear somebody mention your name three groups over. And, and you hear it. Uh, a lot of people have that experience. It seems to mean that you 're hearing everything that 's going on in all those conversations, and of course you pick out the thing that you want to know it It, it proves that we 're all narcissists, that it 's our name that that 's the thing that we pull out of that whole pile of, of auditory sounds but uh, you know from your point of view, how do you explain that
1: i don 't know how to explain that, but i do it does make me think that something i 'm trying to work on is actually listening. Mm-hmm. Because what you remind me of is I think a lot of the time we're listening for what we're next going to say. When we're in a conversation, even with someone we love, we're listening for what's the next thing. And in some ways, it's not like a, it's not a bad thing. It's a normal thing. You're listening for what in what you're saying do I resonate with? Do I understand? Do I connect with that I can add to? And that is on some level, like maybe a biological process. I don't know uh, where there's like, we're going to bond. I'm going to bond with you through having, you like it or- having something to connect on. So that's the reason I'm listening for what I understand already. Of course, the problem there is we're listening for what we understand already. Um, so I don't know how to explain that, except it feels connected to like, we know that <laughs> we've heard it the most, but I also think it does speak to, I think our backs are listening. I think the soles of our feet are listening. I think that we extend beyond our physical self in a literal way, not just in the kind of esoteric way, but like literally that we feel things when they, um, in our environment and we can expand that or contract that. Um, I'd like to work on being, having more awareness and sensitivity of that. Cause I think that's a way we can protect ourselves. If we're in an environment that feels unsafe, we naturally do that, right. The way that we hold our bodies show, whether we're, With these students I was talking about, you know, simple exercises coming up in front and standing and literally just standing with your feet planted on the ground and your arms by your sides and your jaw relaxed and just breathing and looking at everybody. And that's it. And then you sit down and we will do anything to avoid that. (laughs) We will cross our legs and turn our bodies and look, you know, and just and that some of these very simple things are very courageous acts. And that's a total riff and tangent from that. I don't know the answer to that, George. That was a great Magic.
0: Question. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> ask you, I'll ask you another question that you can't answer. Okay, great. <laughs> you said we feel with our backs and with our toes and everything. So I thought I'd mention another example of that kind of experience that a lot of people have, and there's no real explanation for as far as feeling. You're sitting at your desk in your, in your room, uh, your office, or whatever and or your bedroom and you're at your desk and you're looking in this direction and it's you're facing away from the door to your room and you suddenly feel somebody walked into the room Mm -hmm. right and you and the door is open so you don't hear any you don't think you hear anything maybe there's some kind of subtle sounds or something you don't think you hear anything but you feel someone has walked in the room and people also can say it doesn't feel like sam or it doesn't feel like john it feels like so and so and then they turn around it's the cat Uh uh-huh Okay. so sometimes it's just the cat but people a lot of people how many people had something like that where they just feel it yeah. okay you can tell
1: and, your dad's footsteps on the stairs different than your mom right right yeah
0: that's a kind of hearing thing sure the quieter it is or the more less sound it is you, you wonder what it is but but as you can tell from wind and stuff like that your sense of touch does extend out from this is not being yeah terrible, but you obviously can feel things through your back through your
1: well, that's what I was going to say. That's, that's, what that's you saying, yeah. That's a literal way in which you're yeah. exemplifying that our bodies extend beyond the skin. Mm-hmm. And that, is it temperature? Is it light? Is it, is it, I mean, we go to sound because that would make sense hearing the door. Right. But did the temperature just subtly change? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, when you take your shoes off. We're not off,
0: going you, there, you know, where it gets cold and the ghost
1: goes. <laughs> Well, no, but you know <laughs> what I mean? Is there is there something that we can't articulate? All right. I mean, I guess actually that's, Something as well. And as a person who's really interested in words and storytelling, I'm really interested in articulating. Uh, And I also think words are wildly overrated, right? That there's so much that we also miss by trying to articulate everything. Because sometimes words are a way of pinning things down and now they're fixed. And again, I love words and I love the way, but I guess I love poets and authors most whose words can't be pinned down, like Shakespeare. There is no definitive Hamlet. It can be done infinitely. And 500 years later, the language is just as explosive and meaningful and potent. So it's flexible. And um, and I think that sometimes it's come up for me, like if I've had a really profound experience or I went traveling, and I I notice like, at, I come back and, and people I love want to know, how was it? And I find that, like, as I start to talk about it, it's like the experience almost starts to get shrunk, shrunk. Um, or someone writes a beautiful review and it still shrinks the whole thing down, wow. right? Whatever it is. Um,
0: Not as much as a really bad
1: review. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so I think it's that moment is like, oh, learning that sometimes things can be better savored in silence. And sometimes things can be more fully appreciated through the distillation of of poetry, which poets spend a long time choosing exactly the right words, right? And then the spaciousness around being imperfect and like I am right now having this conversation with you that is, you know, attempting to communicate something in words. um, And you're hearing what you're hearing. And I'm trying to share something and we're meeting in moments,
0: and for the live stream audience, we are not going to do silence, right?
2: now.
0: <laughs> it might work here with our live audience, but, but that's okay. but what you just said about sharing with the audience and everything. So does I, I, anybody in the audience have a question that they would like to ask? I'll bring you my mic.
2: Do you tend to be inspired first by a text and then seek a place that resonates with your interpretation? Or do you see a place and, the te- you're, and you know that, that story?
1: Yeah, thank you. It works both ways. Um, and I have examples of of both. I think in the case of Alice, I really knew I wanted to return to Alice um, to celebrate our 20th year anniversary. And then it was kind of kismet because it was in 2020 it was the 150th anniversary of Golden Gate Park. And so it was this kind of natural like, well, let's go find somewhere in Golden Gate Park that this can work. Um, other times I've found the place first and then been like, what needs to happen? Like actually uh, Alcatraz, I had an invitation to explore that um, space and thought, what story can I possibly tell here that will get at some of the deeper themes of this place um, without being pedantic or heavy handed? Um, so Hamlet came. Um, so it just depends. Yeah. Thank you.
0: And also you can ask questions of the white rabbit or Alice. That be- yes. <laughs> how do you like that costume the white rabbit costume that's really quite elaborate
2: (laughs) you can interpret it as (laughs) it's
0: great about this and just interpret it however but anybody else have a question for ava okay then i will
1: well i have a question for our alice actually all right Uh, if she's willing um Two questions, and one, I'm just curious to hear you share a little bit what it's like having um you know rehearse the piece uh, with just me as your audience and now not only do you have a hundred people close to a hundred people following you, you have on most days a gaggle of young children who um, mm-hmm. hold your hand and want to run in front of you, and I'm curious to hear how that's going for you and what it feels like and what you get from it um what it costs.
2: So initially, I mean, it was invigorating, I think, to explore a character who I felt very connected to when I was younger in high school. Cause I felt very connected to Alice and Alice in Wonderland when I was in high school. Cause I was an only child. And so um I think that was really invigorating. I could find the young self in me again. And then doing it for just a couple of people that was loads of fun because I hadn't acted in such a long time. I think that had, I think I hadn't acted in two years, maybe. Um, And before that, I'd been acting, I think, almost every single year. But I was in an accident in 2021, so I wasn't able to act for a good while. And then introducing Alice to 190-so people, it was inspiring in ways that i didn't expect initially as in i was surrounded by so many kids who thought i was who thought and believed i was alice and who would genuinely and who have been genuinely um been asking me questions about who i am as alice and how i function with these characters and these energies in the space. Um, So that has just um, uh, introduced or reintroduced um, so many young ways of thinking. Um, Like, uh, do you have animals? How many animals do you have? Or why are you following the rabbit instead of um, the Red Queen? Um, And so in that is really expanding, mind expanding. So it's just, it's reintroduced imagination in ways that I, um, in ways that I didn't expect.
1: Yeah. I'm so glad you just said, um, I love hearing that it's introduced uh, or reintroduced Reintroduced. younger ways of thinking. And I'm like, oh, right. That's that's something worth underlining and highlighting. And, you know, we um, necessarily take ourselves seriously in certain in situations. But again, from teaching this class at CCA, I've been shocked by how playing games is so powerful and like how long it's been since we've just played a game and how that can unlock imagination. And as you're saying, these young ways of thinking something that's so special about Alice and why it's for all ages, we've had 80 year olds in our audience and we've had six year olds in our audience and everyone in between is that, um, that, (laughs) that people, uh, with Lewis Carroll are invited to kind of think in these illogical ways that are rooted in logic. So it's our world, but the mirror image, right? Through the looking glass and this childlike wonder and this childlike questions, um, we, are not so far away maybe. And they just need to be brought back up to the surface.
2: Exactly. Cause so I'm an office manager right now at an architecture firm and I'm skipping into the office sometimes now.
0: I was going to ask you uh, both, uh, with the success because it's, you know, selling out is really a success at this time. Um, so at the end of May, it's going to be over. Are you going to feel like you just won the Super Bowl and, 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 you know, in your cases, uh, what you just experienced, Do you go to Disneyland next and then say, I have a lot of experience having children follow me around in these costumes. That's not on your on your uh, agenda.
1: Well, if you miss it in Golden Gate Park, you can actually see the adapted version for Villa Montalvo in the last weekend of September and the first weekend of October. So not to take uh, Regina can still answer what she'll do at the end of may <laughs> part of what she'll do is remember the lines and keep herself ready to go to uh adapt the show for a different setting at the end of uh in the fall
0: so it's not over excellent <laughs> no, 10 years from now you'll be skipping into that office and they'll wonder why all right well that was great thank you very very much um, for another program at the commonwealth club and it's 121st year of enlightened discussion. And uh, it was really, really interesting about how you approach theater, Ava.
1: Thank you so much. And thanks, you guys, for being here.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate.